Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. All right, welcome back. And Meltem, I know that you are just getting back from Aracon. Is that right? I am. It, I am. Uh, that is right. So I was back in Berlin following my last visit for Decentral, where I talked about uh, decentralization and how not to be a shitcoin, which was fun. And uh, six months later, we had this great Aragon conference hosted by Aragon, which is a protocol focused on enabling on-chain governance. And uh, it was really a fascinating conversation, fascinating set of topics, and uh, certainly an area that I'm by no means an expert in, but governance and the history of politics has intrigued me for a long time, as I know it has you. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that it's worth backing up because governance is one of these buzzwords, right, that you hear very frequently that has come to mean, I think, in many ways, very little uh, within the blockchain world, you know, means different things to different people. So I think it's worth just calling out before we launch into any further discussion here of why governance matters in talking about blockchain protocols and talking about software development in general. Um, Absolutely. Well, let's take a step back and go sort of metaphysical broad topics. So governance really broadly, I would define as a set of processes that makes up how a network, a market, a state, a system is governed or ruled. And I think one of the interesting things about the conversation in crypto governance, um, this includes laws, it includes cultural and social norms, it includes the way we use language, but it also includes soft and hard expressions of power that could be, you know, historically violence, um, it could be coercion, collusion, or more subtle mechanisms which we see often in our community, things like social signaling, virtue signaling, appeals to authority, and for fans of Cialdini's Principles of Persuasion, which I highly recommend, all of the mechanisms mentioned therein. So it's a nebulous idea, but I think it's important to recognize that governance occurs within institutions and entities in these systems, um, but also it's really dynamic and evolutionary, and it's a function of the relationships between actors and the way they interact with one another. That's a lot of words, but hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, as you said, governance is something that is applicable to all kinds of systems, all kinds of institutions, whether it's, you know, the kind of state actor level governance, whether it's corporate governance, uh, all very important considerations of the structures of of power and the actors and the stakeholders, et cetera, within them. But it's not something that, it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a programmer, I'm not a developer, and I'll be honest, prior to kind of entering the blockchain world, governance was not something I associated with software development, but that <laughs> was a very incorrect, uh, incorrect preconceived notion on my part. 
And that's something that you discover particularly in open source and in dealing with decentralized protocols. And the reason for that, I think it's just worth calling out explicitly in case anyone else has that kind of notion uh, that I had, you know, years ago before entering the space, is that software is a living, breathing thing. It needs updates. Uh, It needs updates to deal with bugs. People will agree and disagree on the direction that the software should go and the direction in which it should develop. And you know, there are many different ways to come to consensus around what the roadmap should be for a given piece of software. And, you know, when you're working within a centralized organization or a centralized institution, when you're working at Facebook or Apple or what have you, then it's pretty straightforward. The roadmap is set by the senior management team and trickles down through the senior engineers and the senior managers uh, to then be implemented um, by, you know, the the sort of uh, developer teams uh, all around the company. Um, but it, it's very different when you're dealing with free open source software, where it's a community collectively trying to make decisions on the future of the technology and, and what it should look like and where it should go. And we've seen that play out several times uh, within these decentralized protocols of disagreements and then eventually finding consensus around what it should look like. So here's where I think I want to sort of categorize and provide a little bit of a framework, if you will. You know my penchant for frameworks, Jill. Uh, It's (laughs) like you went to business school or something. (laughs) Listen, I started my career um, as management consultant five years of my life, and it's very difficult to uh, beat the PowerPoints out of me because when I speak, I literally think of the PowerPoint slide I'm going to make, which I recognize very sad, but uh, you know, what can I do? So look, when I, when I think about governance and there's a Medium post I've published on the topic that you can reference that has some of these graphics and frameworks in it, I think what we've come to collectively in these, to your point, dynamic living, breathing systems and networks we've created is two types of governance. We have off-chain governance, which is what has really predominated um, the Bitcoin governance conversation. And then we have on-chain governance. And we have just started to see the beginnings of what on-chain governance might look like. We've seen the first few systems that have on-chain governance mechanisms go live, including uh, protocols like EOS, Tezos, and others. And then further delineating the two between these off-chain and off-chain mechanisms, we also have formal and informal governance. I think of, for example, the BIP process, the Bitcoin improvement process, um, as sort of a formal but off-chain governance mechanism because there is a stated process, there is a way in which it works. Ethereum similarly has the EIP process, which is also off-chain but has a formal structure that's been stated. There's a way that you submit your proposal. There's a way it's reviewed via these mailing lists, etc. Then there's informal governance. And I think informal governance is really um, this this nebulous and frankly, to me, really fascinating and rapidly shifting tide. That's all about uh, the rule of 
influencers. So there are a lot of people who are, for all intents and purposes, professional pontificators. And perhaps, Jill, you and I share some of that designation as well. But I would say certainly many protocols have de facto, quote unquote, spiritual leaders who inform popular sentiment, who express uh, very clear and very sometimes contrarian opinions about what should happen next. And they peddle for influence in the realm of social media. So as a community, as a group of communities, we seem to have adopted Twitter as one of our primary communication mechanisms, Medium, Reddit, Discord, Slack, Telegram, wherever it may be, there is a lot of informal influence peddling that happens. There is certainly a lot of backroom conversations between the various powers that be. But to me, it's really about informal versus formal systems, and then on-chain versus off-chain. And I think what's interesting about these on-chain um, governance mechanisms is once decisions are reached, there's actually a formal process for implementing these changes into the protocol itself. And that's where um, I wanted to briefly just disambiguate between proof of stake and the process of reaching consensus and the process of staking for governance decisions. So do you want to delve into that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would just add to that, you know, I, I really like your business school framework for this. Um, and it, it reminds me, it, it's just reminding me a lot of, I was lucky enough last summer to be on a panel at ZCon Zero uh, mm-hmm. alongside Zuko Wilcox, Vitalik and Jameson Lopp talking about cryptocurrency governance. And mm-hmm. Peter Van Valkenburg, who was running it, was differentiating between on-chain and off-chain governance, um, just like just like you are. And then also between the different layers at which it can take place. So is it taking place at kind of layer one? Is it taking place as like a layer two on top of the layer one protocol, et cetera? And I think that that is worth calling out alongside what you're saying about how I, I think that proof of stake uh, can often be kind of conflated with, oh, that's that's like a voting mechanism. Uh, and in the sense that it is a mechanism for defining civil resistance, uh, yes, it is a voting mechanism. But there's also a difference between operating and managing the network and securing the network, which is what the function of miners is and the stated function of proof of stake is. And then there's also the question of governing that network. So again, making these decisions about what the future of the network should look like. And these two things go hand in hand, but shouldn't be confused or conflated to be one and the same. Now, again, stakers, uh, miners, these are all very important roles within the governance of either proof of stake or proof of work protocols. Um, but it's not it's not the same function to be securing that network and to be deciding on uh, what what the future of that network should hold. The governance process, the latter of those two, is a much right. more all-encompassing, much bigger mandate. I think another way of saying that more succinctly, if you'll allow me, is that the token can serve two purposes. Tokens and proof of stake um, are a way of securing the network and achieving consensus, but they also serve a dual purpose of enabling people to participate in decision making. So do you agree with that? That's right. And I would would just add to that, that you can have tokens that serve both purposes, 
Uh, You can also have tokens that only serve the governance purpose. Um, Right, which is, by the way, what Aragon is, right? So Aragon has its own token, ANT, and they've been working through kind of the process of figuring out how to enable protocols that don't have a formal governance mechanism to potentially use Aragon and its ANT token um, to have a two-token system where you have the protocol, normal way of reaching consensus, not maintains and manages the, the network. And then there's the second layer where governance happens to the point you talked about that Peter from Coin Center made, where uh, governance decisions happen with a separate token. You would create a one-to-one relationship maybe, or some type of formal relationship between token holders and the number of governance tokens they get. That's one approach. Um, in the decred approach, you can use your tokens to buy tickets. Um, and these tickets are then used to vote. So it's an interesting system. System where you time lock your tokens, they're escrowed, escrowed, pardon, and they're utilized for voting, and there's a small transaction fee, so you actually have to pay a cost. Um, then there's EOS, you know, where there's no cost to staking and voting, pardon, there's no cost to voting um, for block producers. And again, I've actually gone through for the five protocols, the five largest protocols that have an on-chain formal governance mechanism today that involves delegated proof of stake, proof of stake, or some version thereof. I've summarized in my Medium post the mechanics of how each works and the risk and reward profile. But before we delve too deeply into the structure um, of governance and how people are using it as a financial tool and some of the challenges associated with creating a market for governance, which is really the meat of this conversation, I want to go briefly back to the world you and I used to come from, that wonderful world of corporate America. (laughs) The theory of the firm as Kosen Fama and many other behavioral economists have explored Let's talk about how governance has historically existed and historically been expressed, because I think it's an important precedent here to understanding and untangling um, some of the topics we're going to delve into. Yeah, and that's something I love about your essay, Meltem, is that it puts it in context of the historical of corporate governance, of state governance, going back, I mean, you even bring up Plato and Polybius's frameworks for this, going back (laughs) thousands of years. But I think it's a really important make to, point to make because we love to to talk about radical markets and tokens and all of these very new cutting edge ideas. But one of our recurring themes of this of this podcast is that there's nothing new under the sun, and all of this has historical precedent. None of this, you know, we sometimes use terms and language that that hmm. feels far removed from things that sort of non crypto natives. Uh, might think about. But, you know, I look at the history of software development as well. And if you want to, there's a long history of uh, writing and thinking around uh, open source development and how to come to consensus around that. If if you haven't, uh, and if you're listening, if you're interested in this, I would highly recommend the Cathedral and the Bazaar as a place to start on mm-hmm. governance source projects and software development. And and also even just Paul Graham essays, The Other Road Ahead, it talks about sort of roadmaps and and updates and the switch between uh, desktop versus the web. You know, all of these things are things that as a non-developer have really influenced my thinking around technical development. And I know Meltem, away from technical development, you've thought a lot about the parallels to, to corporate governance. Absolutely. I think broadly, 
you know, human beings were wonderful and mysterious creatures. We're all so incredibly complex, our social interactions, the social structures we form are complex, multidimensional. But I think what we sometimes forget is everything in nature tends to be hierarchical. And that's not a um, result always of deliberate intent. Although I do think um, all, you know, disorder tends towards order, and then inevitably all order tends towards disorder. You know that I am heavily, heavily influenced by the laws of thermodynamics and my thinking, and chaos and entropy are these these um, two dueling sort of topics that are always swirling through my brain, but. I do think it's interesting to go back and to look at the way that governance has evolved. So Polybius, who you brought up, and again, for anyone who's interested, um, Polybius's thoughts were largely captured by Aristotle and Plato, but in the Medium post, which we'll reference in the show notes, um, there's a reference to anticyclosis, also called the Kyklos cycle. But basically, Polybius's takeaway three millennia ago, so very long time ago, is that political systems are inherently very fragile and extremely flawed. There are benevolent political systems, and then um, there are uh, sort of uh, bad or uh, malicious political systems. And we sort of tend to oscillate from one to the other extreme in society. And so the Polybius cycle, what it sort of references is typically rule and order and governance begins when a wise leader emerges um, and creates a domain of followers, right? And then uh, this this rulership or this position passes to this ruler's next of, of kin, and you see the beginnings of a monarchy. And then the monarchy starts to abuse power, and it becomes tyranny. And then a group of politically influential, wealthy aristocrats emerge, and they seize back power. And so you see the emergence of an aristocracy. And then they pass power on to their offspring. Um, and we see you know, nepotism in this manner that's perpetuated through wealth and influence and relationships and power. And this then becomes an oligarchy. And then all of the public that is subject to this oligarchy starts looking around and says, oh my gosh, why is power structured this way? Why is money distributed this way? Why are assets so unequally distributed? And they rise up and they overthrow the oligarchs and we see the beginnings of democracy. Right. And this is sort of where we're at in human history. If we look at the world today, <laughs> we see some oligarchies, we see some monarchies, and the world um, now is experimenting with democracy in its various forms. And we could dive into, you know, Jeffersonian beliefs and Bill of Rights and a lot of how US politics evolved the way we it, they did. But um, democracies are really an attempt uh, to enable rule by the people and for the people. And what you see over time under democracy, and this was Polybius's belief, is that people who live under democracy become entitled, and they start speaking out against the powers that be, and you see the form of something called oclocracy, or rule by the mob. And these entitled individuals feel that things should be this way or that way. We see this kind of today on social media. You have a lot of loud shouting voices. Typically, there's a small minority that's extremely, uh, increasingly pardon, polarized. We see them expressing these polarized views in increasingly niche uh, sub-communities. And then we see this splintering and descent into anarchy. And then from anarchy, again, you have this mass chaos. You see the emergence of a new ruler or new leader who can 
unify people with thought um, around how the world should look. And so we repeat this cycle ad nauseum. That was Polybius's belief. Now, um, whether or not you believe in that 100%, I do think one of the genius innovations of the 20th century was the creation of the corporate form, right? And the corporate form is by and large the way that we organize economic and for-profit and also nonprofit endeavor today. And the reason the corporate form works well is because of principal-agent relationships, but also the way that an entity can and enable decision-making to happen across both uh, principles who are uh, you know, people who contribute money, who contribute capital to the endeavor, and also agents who are an ex- expression of the will of the uh, principles. And so there's this interesting dynamic that's emerged in corporates. Uh, you see actually a lot of governance issues in startups because they don't fit the function of the firm. And um, there was actually some really great writing done by Alex Danko at Social Capital He published it just this past week about the unique power laws of Silicon Valley and the unique power laws of founders versus other executives and investors at a firm. And again, it's just really interesting to see all of these edge cases where uh, governance isn't structured the way we historically structured it and the new opportunities but also the new challenges that creates. So again, I don't think you can really look at governance with a set of fresh eyes and say, oh, in a perfect world, here's how it would work. I think you really have to look back at history and understand why systems were designed the way they were and how over time those systems were perverted and corrupted and um, were exploited at their weak edges to enable individuals and groups to take advantage of those dynamics. That's what we do as humans, right? We Yeah, and exactly to that point of that's what we do as humans. I think it's worth calling out that these uh, cycles, these evolutions of governance, it's not just that, oh, there happened to be some bad actors around at the time who corrupted the power of the monarchy or who, you know, uh, devolved the democracy into autocracy or, or anarchy. It's, these are predictable patterns. Um, th- this isn't just sort of, uh, Polybius's thought leadership medium post. <laughs> these think, are, wait, hold on. Do you think Polybius would have been a Twitter influencer? <laughs> hundred percent. But, you know, he was ripping off a lot of Aristotle's and Plato's ideas, which is, which is actually largely, I think, what medium posters and Twitter, Twitter influencers do is repeat others' ideas. There are no new ideas. You know this, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Exactly. (laughs) But the point being, you know, these are predictable, uh, studyable, replicable, patterns and trends. And I something that's always stood out to me as very funny within this space is you have so many brilliant engineers and thinkers across economics and systems design, et cetera, who are very good within the blockchain world, very good at thinking about bad actors and how they might come in, overrun a system and various attacks, various vectors of attacks that might be used. But for some reason, when it's come to this form of governance, and again, I'm not talking about just securing the network or 51% attacks, but when it comes to talking about corporate governance or the human aspects, the in real life aspects of governance, 
it's been a real struggle. And yes, part of that is because we're dealing with sort of new-ish paradigms of, you know, Swiss foundations and Cayman's entities mm-hmm. and token networks and different different stakeholders than, still, than we've had is, in the past. All it is yeah. is a new way to organize human endeavor. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, blockchains aren't these sentient entities. Uh, they're people who are involved in the process of writing the code, regardless of how advanced or how futuristic the system is. And inevitably, when people are involved in the equation, it's very important. And this was one of Polybius's other key takeaways is it's very important for people to be well educated about laws, politics and governance so that they understand what good governance looks like. And what's been so fun about watching the crypto ecosystem evolve from the vantage point I've been in, in particular, where I've had the opportunity to work with so many different projects and so many different teams, is you get to see all of the different ways that things can blow up when governance is an afterthought, which in many of the early projects it was arguably bitcoin and we've talked about the genius of satoshi's design many times arguably in bitcoin (laughs) the process that was best designed was the governance process and you know we always talk about it's um anarchical or sort of meritocratic nature being a feature and not a bug, which makes progress slow, but it ensures that progress in some ways doesn't break consensus. And we've seen forks result in, you know, massive losses and the ousting of certain influencers and certain quote unquote political figures from the community. But I think- I think it's worth diving into that for a second of uh, the Bitcoin forks of the contention within Bitcoin, the kind of warring factions. Uh, so, you know, for those of you who might not know that much about sort of the history of the space, even though it was just a couple of years ago, um, there was a time before Bitcoin had had forked into Bitcoin Cash and now the kind of myriad other Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin SV, so on and so forth. And During that time, there was a war waging basically within the community about how how Bitcoin should develop, what this software roadmap that I was referencing should be. And Meltem, I mean, you were kind of in the trenches of this war in your position at DCG. Uh, So, you know, I would love to hear you chime in a little bit about seeing it firsthand. I watched it play out on crypto Twitter. But there were these kind of warring factions between the miners, between uh, folks who were running major companies that were dependent on a certain direction of software upgrade, uh, between users. And it it was very interesting to watch it ultimately play out into what happened, which maybe you can get to as well. Uh, and, And also, you know, the forums in which it played out, it wasn't all just this open dialogue on crypto Twitter that that anyone could join. One thing that people, uh, some people in the community became very angry about was the sense that there were a lot of backroom dealings yeah. going on. So, so yeah. let's break that apart. So when I think about governance, there are a few fundamental questions. So question number one is who has the right to govern? or participate in governance. And question number two is, who has the will to govern? 
And in a lot of cases, the parties who have the right to govern may not always have the will to govern and vice versa. So in my view today, the right to govern, um, while it may be defined, um, it's typically a little nebulous. And unfortunately, today, the right to govern is really based on these dynamics of power in crypto, where we have exchanges who are these central entities that really control people's ability to access tokens and protocols, right? Arguably, exchanges are the single largest contact point that users have to these networks, um, for better or for worse, and that's just a, a reality. Then you have investors, so funds, VCs, etc. This is the seat I've been occupying. And investors, um, as much as we'd love to believe that they are uh, benevolent and they just want what's best for the system, we have to remember they're vested in very specific outcomes. And they're their fiduciaries and their role is to take in capital and to earn a return on that capital. And so they're going to behave in ways that serve their own interests. Um, then we have foundations or these entities involved in development. Maybe they're endowed with rights to govern. Maybe they're not, but they are influential. And typically these entities support research, they support development, and they play a direct role in the evolution of these living, breathing projects. And then you have teams and individuals who are heavily involved in these projects. And so taken together, um, you have this group of people and it's no surprise, just like every other system we've seen, that money and power really dictate who has the right to govern. And then the will to govern is something totally different. In a lot of cases, the will to govern comes from people who have a lot at stake. Um, they have a lot to lose or a lot to gain, depending on specific outcomes. And it also comes from people who are very deeply invested in these systems and networks, i.e. the holders, these people who have spent a lot of time and energy and have invested psychologically, emotionally, I think in big coin, there was almost a religious fervor to it, which made it so potent and so powerful. And so when those two forces clash, people who have the right to govern and people who have the will to participate in governance, what you see is a battle for influence and a battle for power. And it really, at the end of the day, is a political game. It's a battle for hearts and minds. So what happened in, in the Bitcoin hard fork, and again, by no means am I a historian on this topic. There are many people who've written on the topic who are continuing to dissect the ongoing evolution of, of Bitcoin's governance structure and of how Bitcoin operates and both the hard and soft forms of power that people exercise. What I think is so interesting and really the place where I sat um, a digital currency group is for about a year, there was this ongoing schism in the Bitcoin community. And I call it a schism because it feels sort of like the ideological split between Catholics and Protestants, right? <laughs> Which is, and, and perhaps it's giving it too much credence. This is software. This is not a matter of religious belief. But it's also money. Believe, it's also money. <laughs> it is. But I do believe these types of battles in the future, like religious is, religion, pardon, is a multi-trillion dollar market. A lot of the passion and fervor that people feel for cryptocurrencies in a way resembles religion because the outcome of these governance experiments is going to set a precedent for how these money systems work in the future, right? And that's very important. 
there's a lot at stake here. And so um, there was this tension, this schism between two camps. There was a camp that wanted Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin network to enable blocks in the Bitcoin blockchain to have a larger size and therefore accommodate more transactions. And there was a group that said, no, we don't want that because it changes the dynamics of power between miners, users, operators of companies, etc. And then um, what happened is basically there's a stalemate, a lot of arguing going back and forth. It's very difficult to get any changes implemented. At the time, SegWit had been introduced, which resolved some um, challenges in the existing Bitcoin network code. And so there was sort of this schism where in you know, the spring of 2017, a group of influential and powerful people who had a lot of capital and who ran companies that touched a lot of users and was was sort of their connection point to accessing the Bitcoin network. A group of these companies and influential, powerful, wealthy people got together and said, let's do something. If this small group of us can agree on what to do, then we should be able to affect that change because we collectively are representative of a large set of people who use the Bitcoin network. And so this is how the New York Agreement, um, also called SegWit2x, was reached. And it was sort of this compromise where they said, hey, what if we placate the big blockers, we'll increase the block size to two times what it is today, but then the other side should also get something they want. We'll activate SegWit. Right. And so it was sort of, as you always see in politics, there was peddling of influence and the end result was sort of a middle of the road compromise. This result was published. People were asked to sign a petition. Um, I actually, you know, spent a lot of time typing up the language, having adding people's names, running some stats on what percent of the miners, what percent of token holders, what percent of wallet addresses might be represented by this quote unquote vote, even though it really wasn't a vote. And really what happened in the community is that agreement fell apart. Um, A lot of things fell apart. And effectively, what was decided is instead of these this large group of people trying to collaborate together on this one piece of software, this one network, they were going to split into two where each group was free to express its intent. And so we saw this fork happen and Bitcoin Cash was created and then Bitcoin Cash further forked um, late last year. And really what happened over time is we saw that large influential entities weren't really able to influence the direction of Bitcoin. There was a vocal community of users and holders who were very politically active, who fought for influence and power in soft ways, even though they didn't have money, even though they didn't control companies or networks, they used what they had, which was their influence. It was, you know, the community that they were all collectively a part of. And as a result, what we've seen is the Bitcoin fork um, that spun off Bitcoin Cash and its subsequent forks, that community sort of splintered and got fragmented over time. And the value of that network has been eroded. And um, the value of the Bitcoin network, by the way, has also been eroded, right? The original Bitcoin chain, it's also been eroded. But um, that's been sort of the winning chain. And as a result, what I do think you've seen is you've seen people start to be attracted to Ethereum and other proof of stake systems that have formal governance mechanisms, because I think a lot of people were quite scarred um, by what happened. And I think, again, this pendulum between, you know, dictatorial rule and uh, more open, expressive rule, it's a pendulum that swings. And we see this in crypto as well. 
Although, I mean, Ethereum <laughs> is not immune to its own forking drama. And by forking drama, I mean governance crises either. And so just to put... Just to put both the Bitcoin fork and perhaps also attempt to put the Ethereum fork, uh, referring to the DAO fork um, back in 2016, into the context that you were talking about, Polybius's historical context. I think that the, a lot of the reason why the New York Agreement or Segwit2x was uh, unpalatable to people was that it felt a lot like oligarchy. It felt like a small group of users or a small group of builders, a small group of perhaps aristocrats within the community came together to make a decision about the future of the network. And in reality, what happened was it descended into something that looked a little bit more like democracy, that the oligarchical decision there did not end up working or playing out. And instead, you know, the, the, the kind of larger communities in a way voted, but they voted with their feet, much as people can do when they, they leave their home country or their home state. They voted with their feet uh, on which network they would have allegiance to. I think that the problem that some have with the Ethereum fork, again, the DAO fork, is that that to them felt a lot like either monarchy or tyranny, depending on who you ask, where it was the ruler leadership of just a very small handful of individuals and, you know, a lot of people pin it on Vitalik himself around which direction uh, Ethereum should go. Should it roll back to erase the DAO hack or should it sort of continue on and, and just deal with the consequences mm -hmm. of the right. bug in the code? 10% of tokens being <laughs> sort of not stolen, but uh, siphoned away from their original owners via this uh, smart contract. That's right. That's right. And what was interesting to me about um, the DAO hard fork, and actually I thought Peter Todd um, did a good job writing about this. There was this ongoing conversation, actual coin vote was done um, in Ethereum. Do you remember the coin vote in 2016? I Jill? do. Yeah. And so what they did is they said, look, um, Ethereum's proof of work, we don't have a voting mechanism, but in an attempt to try to capture the collective thoughts of the holders of these tokens, they had a coin vote as to whether or not the chain should hard fork. And uh, about 5% of Ether um, in circulation participated in this vote. But what was interesting is even though the amount of Ethereum Ether tokens um, that was used in the vote represented 5% of the issued supply. It represented a, fall smaller, a far smaller pardon, number of wallets, which is very interesting to me. Um, so you kind of, again, had the oligarchs caring enough to try to figure out how to vote because um, there are technical barriers to entry. There is also an information barrier because there is no formal communication mechanism for these projects. Like you're not on a mailing list. You're not on a proxy voting list or shareholder list. You don't get an email saying like, hey, you need to vote in this hard fork decision. It happens online. And if you're not actively engaged in the conversation, too bad, so sad. But what was really interesting, and this is where voting becomes such, and you and I have talked about our um, opposition to blockchain-based voting, but this is where it becomes very interesting because there is this fundamental challenge around privacy and rule of the mob. But you actually had people in the Ethereum community, and this is again in the post that I, in the article I wrote, um, where people were saying, hey, if you know the identity of anyone coordinating an effort to oppose this hard fork, send me their name, right? Yeah. So 
there was this mob that sort of emerged of the powers that be the influencers, people who had a lot, of, a lot of money at stake in this particular case. And they said, if you know of anyone who's trying to go in the opposite direction of us, let me have at them because I will shut this down. And to me, it was just such an interesting precedent for all of the ways that governance can go wrong. Arguably, the Ethereum team did the best they could at the time with the tools they had, and they attempted to use new tools um, and attempted to you know try new things. But again, governance is this dynamic evolving thing. And what I worry about now, we now have $4 billion of network value tied to proof of stake protocols. You look at EOS. um, And when I say proof of stake protocols, I mean proof of stake protocols with an on-chain governance mechanism where you use the token in voting as well as for consensus, right? So you have EOS. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to hop in there and say, I, th- I think that one important thing that all of this history highlights for me is that, yes, we can talk about on-chain governance, and there is an on-chain govern- governance mechanism of voting. There might even be financial incentives around this, which I'm sure you're going to get into here in a second. But at the end of the day, as your outlining happened with you know both the Ethereum hard fork as well as the Bitcoin fork... All governance is actually, at the end of the day, off-chain governance, I would argue, because that's where the informing process happens. That's where the communication process happens. Um, you know, one one piece of literature, one article that really informed my opinion around this is written by uh, Kevin Garcia on Towards a Better Practice of Stakeholder Mapping in Crypto Networks. It's super worth reading if you haven't already. It's on Medium. Um, and, you know, a lot of what he talks about is just the off-chain interactions amongst stakeholders mm-hmm. and where that happens and how that happens. And that's that's just so important to keep in mind in any discussion of, quote, on-chain governance, which is really just the, the mechanism by which consensus <laughs> is reached. I'm going to throw out a, another thought here. Um, I actually thought Dan Larimer did a good write-up on this. He talked about the limits of crypto economic governance, where um, really what we're trying to do with a lot of these governance projects is design a, he calls it a black box, where when people do things that are good for the system, they're rewarded. And when they do things that are bad, they get shocked, right? Like they get a little electrical zap or they get punished in some way. And again, Mm -hmm. I think what's really challenging is who determines what good or bad is. How do you minimize rent seeking? How do you minimize um, people taking advantage of or perverting the system as we know they are wont to do? So today we have $4 billion of network value. And that number is arguable, but let's just, let's just go with it for now. Um, across EOS, Tezos, um, Dash, uh, Decred, and uh, Neo, right? And so we have all of these protocols that are coming into existence. And we have Cosmos coming soon. Cosmos, by the way, just had a really interesting situation on their test net where they identified a cartel, which had 53% of the votes. And they're trying to actively now design a mechanism to remove this cartel. Um, And more on that topic, because I love collusion and cartels. I I think it's fascinating. (laughs) But I think um, these networks, right, today they're valued at roughly $4 billion. But as these networks grow in size and scale, what's inevitably going to happen is these networks are going to become, um, come under social attack 
right? Not just technical attack through 51% attacks and other um, attacks on the security and the consensus mechanism design, but under social engineering attacks and political attacks by people who are incredibly sophisticated and who are very adept at understanding human nature and our innate desires. And I think a lot of the design we're talking about here is really about understanding uh, human behavior and trying to design systems that encapsulate not only our own um, wants and desires, but that account for the historical behavior and the historical flaws we've seen in the mechanisms of governance we've tried in the past. So let's talk about the topic at hand. This is the topic I've been wanting to dive into, cartels, collusion, and the politics of power. So here's what I worry about, Jill, and I'm going to be alarmist and um, you'll just have to indulge me. What I worry about (laughs) is that with many of these formal on-chain governance systems, what we're creating is plutarchies and what we're creating is pay-to-play systems And because the initial wealth distribution of assets in these protocols is so unequal, and we can debate the merits of that, but let's be fair, it is extremely unequal. Um, What we have, what ends up happening is a dynamic where the people who incepted or created the protocol and the people who were first in end up having the most power. And whether they're monarchs or tyrants or oligarchs, whatever we want to characterize them as, once the system starts to grow in value in the number of parties involved, people jockeying for power, these initial um, participants are going to band together and they're going to do everything that they possibly can to stay in power. Because once you have power, you don't want to give it up which is why we have term limits for presidents, which is why we have term limits for rulers. And we've seen what happens to my country, Turkey. Erdogan really likes power. He's not giving it up now that he's had a taste of it. We saw this in the country you've been studying, Venezuela. We see this everywhere. So what happens to these systems over time? Can they be um, run more democratically? Should they be run as these states that are purely focused on profit seeking by a small group who controls the majority of assets? Now what I'm starting to see, which is interesting, um, there are a few companies that are providing staking as a service and their pitch to investors is as such. Um, Stake your tokens with us. We will return 5 to 100% per year, depending on the protocol. And here's the issue I have with that. If people are participating in governance, on-chain governance using tokens as a way to earn return, as a way to make money, what ends up happening is governance becomes a financial function. And the only decisions that get made are those decisions which benefit the financial participants. And so what you effectively create is a mega rent-seeking machine. Reaction. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that the most interesting aspect of all of this to me is the conflation of markets with governance, um, which is something fairly new here uh, that you know, what, what happens when you combine a financial incentive with a a governance mechanism, that's a really interesting, really scary question. Because we've seen historically, right, that uh, whether it's sort of outright direct 
lines of corruption and kickbacks and so on in government or whether it's the more kind of obfuscating lobbying type of of interaction between financial incentives and governance, it can lead to really problematic outcomes. Um, now, you know, I can hear the audience kind of saying, well, hang on, what about what about in standard corporate structures where you have shareholder voting rights, et cetera? Is that not that's that is somewhat the same as what we're talking about in terms of the risks of plutocracy and in terms of the risks of combining financial incentives with governance. But what I would say to that is almost never do you have it such that the shareholders are the only form of governance going on. Absolutely uh, not. Because if management doesn't like what shareholders want, they're going to be issues. Um, this is what the exactly. 1980s were all about, baby. Leverage plants, <laughs> golden parachutes, like white knights. Um, I'm a big fan of financial nonfiction based on LBOs, um, Barbarians at the Gate, which was about the buyout of RJR Nabisco. Oh, that's a great one. Right? These books kind of collectively shaped um, my outlook on markets. And I had the pleasure of spending an extensive amount of time studying corporate finance in business school. Yes, collective sigh. Um, and I actually was a, a TA for uh, many of the advanced corporate finance classes. And you know, this is the topic we always talked about is what happens when an activist investor comes in, buys the majority of the shares and attempts to do something that's not good for shareholders. And there are um, investors who have made a living out of this. Look at Carl Icahn. Right? Um, exactly. And what is exactly. so interesting to me in crypto what we don't talk about is there are a lot of activist investors in crypto. Uh, they don't call themselves that. But there are a lot of. I wanted to get into this. Yeah. So there are a lot of people who are activist investors in investor circles. There are a lot of conversations that happen behind the scenes where people talk about what they think would be best, and they try to find ways to collaborate and exercise their soft power to try to push teams in the direction that makes sense for them. And so what I see happening here. And um, one of the dynamics I've already observed in some of the protocols I participate in is effectively when you have service providers that are helping people stake and focusing on maximizing their financial return through staking and participating in governance, effectively these services are going to become political parties of their own and they're going to become cartels in a box right? Cartel as a service. Because inevitably, if you have 20, 30, 40% of the votes, quote unquote, in a network that you're responsible for managing, that you're responsible for optimizing in these governance decisions, you're going to do whatever it takes to maximize profit and keep your investors happy. Because you wouldn't want another service provider to do something different, which results in a higher yield for their end customers. And so inevitably, what it becomes is really a race to the bottom. And this is what's so interesting to me is we seem doomed sometimes to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, and I think actually we'd be better served if we thought about activism actively. Um, let's talk about cartels. Let's talk about collusion. There have been a lot of conversations of collusion around EOS, and I don't need to delve into the dialogue here. Um, a lot of it's sort of reference. And if you even, you know, Google search EOS cartel, EOS collusion, you'll see some of the concerns that exist around block producers and votes and large holders of tokens. And so what I, I really think about is 
this quote unquote cartel of good intentions that may form where investors participate in thought leadership and they write these long pontificating posts about what they believe is best for these systems. Now, these people are not people who are building things on top of these protocols, right? And this is where the fundamental tension of how we're capitalizing crypto networks becomes really self-evident. Most speculative investors unfortunately, are not users of these networks. And so the question of what governance outcomes are best for the network are difficult to untangle. Because on the one hand, from the vantage point of an investor, I can certainly see maximizing values being the best outcome. But from the vantage point of an engineer or developer or someone who's really ideologically committed to this network, it could be something totally different. And so this cartel of good intentions forms where everyone starts to talk about, oh, you know, we just want what's best for the protocol. Tools are not inherently good or bad. They're not inherently just or unjust. We, by our use, make tools take on character. And so what's interesting to me is all of these tools we're trying to create to help people maximize the profit of how they participate in governance are inevitably going to be the demise of many of these systems themselves. And I think latching onto that, there is also something to be made here of the confusion around what these tools are for, right? Arguably, much of crypto, much of the <laughs> protocol work that's been done, many of the dApps that have been created have yet to find product market fit. And so without a strong consensus around what this stuff is for, it's going to inevitably be very hard to decide on any kind of roadmap of upgrades. It's going to be very hard to decide on what it is, what features, what uh governance mechanisms, whatever, is going to add the most value to the tool. And, you know, I may think that, oh, crypto is good for, uh, to, to act as money and a freedom preserving tool in a place like Venezuela. Somebody else might think that it's good for gaming tokens. And those two use cases alone should probably have very different technological properties to them in a lot of ways. And so if we're trying to come to consensus about that, then you know, that's that's going to be an issue no matter what sort of governance mechanism you use. And that's not even to mention, as you're bringing up, the investors and the other stakeholders who sort of don't even care, perhaps, what it's used for as long as it goes up in value. And so, you know, you'll have these sort of competing factions as long as we don't have product market fit. And, you know, they'll they'll continue to persist until we we find something. So I'll, I'll end my thoughts on this topic on one note. I know we've had a meandering conversation. I think that the future, you know, is going to unfold the way it unfolds. And I have some ideas of the role I would like to play. Um, I have thoughts on experiments I'd like to run. I will note, as I was writing my little article, I tried to incorporate a lot of data. And it's just really difficult to find data about on-chain governance. And so my, I guess, request to these projects and teams and protocols that are creating these tools is please, please, please make it easy to find, collect, and analyze data because we should be using some of this data, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, to inform um, how we continue to evolve 
the design and implementation of these governance tools. But um, it, it's going to be fascinating to see how these new networks evolve. I'm sure some networks will grow to maneuver around the risks we've talked about. And perhaps in this process of learning, we'll learn how to avoid some of these pitfalls. But there's also this other conversation happening around deplatforming, right? And this is where I think it, again, gets gets interesting. Crypto is rife with conflicts. It's, it's one of the reasons it's so fun intellectually. But look, for example, at Cosmos that's trying to actively remove cartels from their system. And um, we see this right in Twitter and other social media platforms where when people know the rules of the game, they start to game the system, right? They start to optimize around mm-hmm. the rules to help themselves. And um, when ne- these networks or these platforms don't like what's happening, what they do is they say, hey, we don't think you're using our network the way it should be used. We don't like what you're doing. So we're going to remove your ability to participate in this network. And that in its core is censorship and deplatforming. Now, uh, we can argue the semantics of that, but I don't want to get into that topic here. But I think it creates this really fundamental tension where the beauty of blockchain networks was supposed to be their uncensorable nature. And really what that means is the intent in a designing these networks becomes all the more important. Because if abuse is possible within your design, is it the fault of the abuser or the designer of the system? And I'll add one more thing there, uh, which is that we talk about the design of the system. We talk about abusers of the system. But I also want to talk about users of the system, which this is a point that you make in your blog post. This is a point that has been made ad nauseum about cryptocurrency in general, which is that if no one can use the system, if no one can use the governance system, what does any of this matter? If it's so technically complex to be able to access that only software developers will be able to access and use it, then only software developers will actually be participating in the direct governance mechanism that you have within your protocol or your community. And an essay that I referenced earlier in this talk, the Paul Graham essay, The Other Road Ahead, he talks about death before inconvenience, that people will only use something, people will only use software because it's more more convenient. We need to have that mindset as we're thinking about how to design these things from the bottom up, not just about the user experience of it themselves. Because ultimately, hopefully, this is the future. This is the future of, of money and of our financial systems. and you know, we need to take lessons from the past. And one of those lessons is that governance only works when there's actual participation. Yep. And um, I actually talk about this extensively as well in my post, you know, the, the design of the mechanism really matters. And if at the end of the day, we have to rely on intermediaries to allow us to participate in governance, then um, that just creates another layer of risk and another potential way um, for power to be taken away from people. So I think after, you know, this long (laughs) meandering dialogue about one of the topics that I both love and loathe, um, the topic of governance, because it is so deeply subjective in so many ways. um, I think we are, however, at this tipping point in our community, in these experiments we've been running, where we're starting to see these things go live. And I myself am, frankly, absolutely fascinated by these systems. I think it's ideologically interesting, politically interesting, technically interesting, morally and culturally 
fascinating. And uh, it's it's going to be fun. I'm sure we could revisit this topic a year from now and have a good chuckle about all of the places you and I were wrong, um, but also all of the places where we saw, as we talked about in our first iteration of this podcast, the Bodie McBoat faces of the world. What happens <laughs> when you allow the mobs to vote or participate in decision-making? You're going to end up with some really weird stuff, but uh, hopefully some good things come out of that process too. That's right. And on that Bodie McBoat face note, if you haven't listened to it already, we'll include a link in the show notes to the the last version of this uh, governance podcast that we did. But thanks for tuning again this week and hearing more of what we have to say on the topic. Jilly, see you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.